A reading from the book of Moses, Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 31 in the New American Standard Bible. Now, he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. A reading from Book of Psalms, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7 and verse 15 in the New American Standard Bible. Hear a just cause, O Lord, give heed to my cry, give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand, from those who rise up against them. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. A reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 1 through 5, in the New American Standard Bible. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without costs. Why do you spend money for it is not bread? and your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make, you an, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Behold, 
I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Amen. A reading from the book of Psalms, chapter 145, verses 8 and 9, and 14 through 16 in the New American Standard Bible. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. A reading from the book of Psalms, chapter 119, verses 73 through 80 in the New American Standard Bible. Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be ashamed for they subvert me with a lie. But I shall meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. A reading from Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter nine, verses one through five in the New American Standard Bible. I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory of the covenants and the living and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. 
a reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 13 through 21, in the New American Standard Bible. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we're here to honor you, to receive your word. We pray your Holy Spirit would be with us to uh, open the eyes of our heart, to awaken our hearts, to give us a passion for you and everything that is found in your word and in our calling to be disciples of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. Example. There we go. Um, so I think I'm going to focus, or actually I know I'm going to focus in uh, Genesis. going to say something about the Psalms quickly to start off. Um, hit a little bit on Psalm 19, 119, uh, Romans, and our gospel reading in Matthew. So let's see if we can do it in a timely fashion this week. Um, it's going to get kind of towards the end. It's actually in, in our um, Psalm 119. So yeah, I'm just, I'll actually just start in Psalm 119. Let me just do that and go kind of out of order uh, how we have this in here. So I, our first note there just says, give me understanding wisdom and understanding the Ten Commandments, assuming that when he's saying in verse 3, give me understanding, verse 73, I'm sorry, Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Um, right? So when you think about that, you think like, well, that's in, there's commandments, there's statutes, there's precepts, there's all these different words for uh, different rules. There's, and then different translations, we have rules and different things are translated that. So he's presumably talking about the commandments, but understanding that he may know them. And I talked a little bit about it last week, and I want to kind of talk a take time to talk about it now in um, our understanding of the Ten Commandments. Hopefully, everybody has the Ten Commandments memorized, at least in some uh, summary format. You know, the latter half is easy. The four of the six through nine are just verbatim, uh, thou shalt not murder. That's an easy one. But the first five are a little bit harder uh, in the long version because there's blessings and curses and promises. 
their assertion. But either way, I hope everybody has that. And last week I mentioned Matthew 23, 23, that when Jesus is, is um, uh, putting essentially a curse on the scribes that like you tithe human and mint and dill, these things you ought to have done without neglecting the weightier things of the law in the ESV. And I think the NASB says the deeper things of the law, which are uh, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So in this kind of section of 119, of Psalm 119, he's talking about like understanding, like so one of the things we should be searching for as Christians, which is our, our Christian duty, is not just to know the law, and we kind of in the evangelical way call it like, I hear, I hear people say like, you know, the law of Christ, and that's true. That's like a real thing, you know. Uh, you look at the Sermon on the Mount, he takes, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery to a higher level than what everybody was thinking, right? It didn't change what that meant in, in, the, in Deuteronomy and in Exodus and Leviticus and, and in all throughout the Old Covenant. It didn't change the meaning at all. It was always the meaning, but he explained it in such a way that they got it. like, oh, so this is what thou shalt not commit adultery, uh, means, which was deeper than their current understanding. So I think our duty as Christians is to have that understanding of the law as kind of our base for who we are. That's how we're supposed to operate. That's how we're going to be in First Peter, a people, a priest, a nation uh, called to be separate from the world. Um, and just to give like a little anecdote without giving any context to it uh, or any names because it might... Uh, go too far, but I was actually impressed with one of the brothers in the church today because, not today, but in this past week, because an issue arose where uh, we had to um, uh, handle other people's stuff, and it's always a tricky thing when you handle other people's stuff uh, because it's their stuff and it's not yours, and that makes them mad. Uh, And so the most honorable thing to do, and in this situation, uh, we were helping them vacate a premise and we bagged up all their stuff, and we are going to throw it outside. And at least that was my idea. And so, but uh, this person, there was some more expensive things, and uh, uh, they took very special care of it to make sure those things that would really be valuable are taken care of and uh, given to the person. And without even reading the law, this is on this person's heart. Uh, Exodus, so when it's talking about understanding the law and the uh, general application of the law. In Exodus 23, um, this is what it means to love your neighbor. Exodus 23, 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. No other clause. Just if you see it, you know this is your enemy's. They treat you poorly. doesn't matter who's at fault or why they're your enemy. You take it back to them. It's their property. If you see the donkey of one of those who hate you, Right, uh, uh, lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Rescue it with him. Right. So if you see someone who hates you, an enemy, anybody, who and their their ox, their property, whatever, you can generally apply this. Is you're supposed to do something about it. Not say in uh, modern. I don't know if this is a word, karmistic way, like, oh, karma got that person. The Lord's really getting vengeance on him, (laughs) right? We're supposed to actually take care of that and say, oh, we can't leave them there. 
this person hates me. They treat me poorly. And it might be, it might be justified or it might not be justified. But that's what we're called to do. That's directly in the law. And, you, and we can kind of see that. And I'm just using that as like a general principle of understanding the law so much, not that that would just be in our hearts, but it'd be in our minds and we'd know to what to look out for, right? Uh, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about, you know, if you um, do good to those who love you, what benefit is that? The Gentiles do that. Like, love your enemy, right? And this is what it means. So you might think in your own naturalistic, in our own naturalistic ways, how do I love my enemy? Well, I'm going to pray for them and I'll you know, say happy birthday on Facebook or something or whatever people do, Uh, you know, but this is how we do it. This is what we should be looking out for. How can I bless my enemy and preserve, like in this case, it's just, this would meet a natural means of preserving their property, right? Um, You know, that, and that's just on, on mercy. And that's just what I'm thinking of, like in our natural response to how the law how what we think of mercy and how the law talks about mercy, right? And there's, and go through this. I love the, I love that how right after the 10 commandments, the first thing, uh, one of the first things he talks about is laws on altars. Then I'm just reading the ESV, you know, subtitles that are supplanted in there. Laws about slaves and how to treat people fairly, how to, you know, given that culture. And then chapter 22 is all about like stealing, you know, and it's all about like, property, rights, natural ways that we can love our neighbor, obey God, and we should know these things. And I encourage everyone to just read through Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus hundreds of times and think about, you know, having those laws, having those case laws in our minds in such a way that when we think about our natural response of what my heart wants to do, I see, uh, you know, people that I don't necessarily like as much as other people. And, you know, um, sometimes they get dealt a bad hand and my natural response is most of the time, well, they got what was coming to them. They should have done something about that. They should have, you know, done something different, right? But that's not, uh, the Lord actually condemns that and uh, wants us to bless our enemies in those real ways. And, and that's how we obey his law. So I don't want to belabor that too much, but on that specific point in looking in Exodus, and you guys can read through more of those in context. Um, just real, real quick, is there, does anybody know the one instance of a death penalty for stealing? That I, at least that I know of. Normally stealing, right, we think of scripturally uh, that there's restitution made, right? You steal something, you pay it back, or you pay it back in a multiple. Uh, that's, hi- like, that's, that's hyperbolic, that's true. That is one, but that's not, I mean, like, property. And I don't think the Bible calls women property or spouses. But I'm just clarifying. Does anybody know? Uh, not a specific time. If, if someone's breaking into your property to steal, you can, I don't want to say you can kill them. Uh, but if someone, it says if someone's breaking into Exodus 22, if someone's breaking in to steal, you don't know their intents. I'm putting that in there. And if you kill them, their blood is not on your, is not, you're not guilty against it. So that's the one instance. Don't kill people for stealing. But, you know, I, I say that because you know how many times I've heard people, uh, I know people who work in retail and different things who are really just, you know, who are 
probably honest Christians and really like hate people who steal. <laughs> and I asked one person once who's a Christian, uh, and they were um, pretty much advocating that we cut people's hands off, and they were pretty mad about it. <laughs> pretty mad about people stealing, but there's no instances of that in scripture. So we have to know God's law is what I'm saying. So, and I just want to commend us like in days such as this, where like, there's a lot of things going on. 2020 is the year of like the downward trend in America where things are coming to surface. Um, I think it's our time to shine as individuals who know the law, uh, families, right? Who operate by the law of God, who know it so well. And a church body, uh, who know those weightier things and have a deep understanding of the commandments and how to apply them in our societies. So, that's all I got on Psalm 119. That only took 11 minutes. So, let's look at um, the book of Moses, Genesis. Um, that comes into, I'm going to kind of relate this, this with our Romans reading and our reading in Matthew of... Um, some things. So it really is, as you get to some of the notes in in Romans, there really is a benefit to being what we'd call like pre-evangelized, someone who's grown up in a church, who knows the word, who knows Bible stories, who knows something. Um, uh, and we'll see that more in Romans of the, uh, the, of the advantage because you know the scriptures, especially if you know them from an early age, if you grew up in a Christian family or even a pseudo-Christian family that uh, that honor the word and, and read you Bible stories, it's a super blessing because this is like um, a really weird section of scripture. Like you go through this whole passage of, of Jacob and this ordeal with of Rachel and Leah and fleeing from Laban and he's trying to get back and he's worried about Esau and he comes to a river and he senses all his people across and he's, you know, God's blessed him so much and uh, and then, like, this guy comes and wrestles him, like, in the middle of the night, like, and it's like, you know, it's one of those things where if you read about, like, the Tower of Babel, we all know that that's, like, a major thing in Scripture, in Genesis, right? But it's, like, ten verses. It's not, like, this long, drawn-out thing. It's this major theme that carries out, and this is also one of those things. So what do we see in looking in Christocentric, Christotelic themes? Um, uh, uh, Jacob is in the wilderness. He's alone, right? He sends everyone up. He's in the middle of the night, right? Presumably, he's, you know, um, a man who isn't by any means lazy or just kind of meandering through life. He's getting up early, presumably, to get everybody ready, send them across, and then uh, this man comes out of nowhere and starts wrestling them, right? Happens to me all the time. No, like nothing like this has ever happened. Uh, and so I just want to point out that as we see Jacob getting his name changed, names obviously have a huge meaning um, in Scripture. Names have a huge way of telling you who the person is. And so Jacob gets his name changed to Israel because he, um, was that verse 27, 28, uh, it says, For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So if you look at this Christocentrically, Jesus being the true Israel, uh, Matthew writes in, in chapter 2.15 that uh, quotes Hosea 11.1, 1, that as I have called uh, my true Israel my, since you were a young boy, um, referring to Jesus being drawn out of Jerusalem, that um, 
we're going to kind of see that, that Jesus is the true Israel, but also relating our Romans chapter 9, um, you have to go past this through verses, where is it, in 6? 5? 6 through 9 in Romans uh, 9 talk about uh, the church, the people of God being the true Israel. So Jacob gets his name changed, and so that's who we are. That's who we identify with, right? Those who wrestle with God and prevail. And if this story is a little confusing, um, especially in the NASB, it's, uh, it's God, it's the man, it's the pre-incarnate figure of Christ that is saying, the dawn is coming, let me go. And here's this man, who knows how long they actually wrestled. Uh, here's this man who's wrestling with Jacob, who, if you remember back to when he, he gets on, on Laban's ranch or whatever, he moves this giant stone. He's strong. <laughs> He's a strong man. And so, uh, and Jacob calls him God, and so that's how we know it's God, and a pre, uh, pre-incarnate figure of Christ. But it's that guy who's saying to Jacob, let me go, the dawn's coming. He's essentially saying, uh, I gotta go, this is really fun, I got business to attend to, uh, I could wrestle with you some more, but, but Jacob, I gotta go, the, the day's coming, I got business, right? That's the kind of essence of what's going on here. And so Jacob's like, no, uh, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm not leaving. I'm not going to stop fighting you until I get your blessing, right? And that, um, you know, at least, uh, you know, figures Christ's attitude. If you just look at his overall ministry, you know, it was an often a thing that Christ did in his earthly ministry of getting time alone and praying all night. And in the Garden of the Gethsemane, you can see like another wilderness theme of how Christ wrestled with the Father of, you know, uh, I'll do anything, take this cup from me, not my will be done, but your will be done type of thing. And so, you know, I don't want to get in uh, to it exactly and say like Jacob was, you know, doing spiritual disciplines and praying all night and because it doesn't give any light to that. But a lot of people wouldn't, a lot of um Theologians would interpret that way. So what's interesting or what struck out in me, and this is why I think it's so important to read these things like slowly and be like, what is going on? And because when I first read this and I know what's going on, I've read it, you know, several times. I'm still like, wait a minute, it keeps using pronouns. So which, which he is it? Who is the he and who is the other he? And what's interesting is Jacob says, tell me your name. And God's like, nah. <laughs> Not going to tell you, right? Uh, so to bring in a couple things that, that Greg's been talking about recently, and um, just so who was Genesis written for in what time period? Who wrote it? Who wrote Genesis? Moses. And who was it written to? The Jews, the Israelites. And where were they? In the wilderness, right? They had not crossed over. Like the end, last chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses died. He wrote that. No, I'm just kidding. That's put in there after he dies, obviously. <laughs> Moses didn't write that he died. <laughs> and, uh, but so think about, I'd just take time maybe this week, if you guys use these throughout the week, to think about like who was this written to in a context. Moses was writing this to the Israelites in the desert. And um, I hadn't thought about this too much until reading through this because it's building up like when did... When did God give the, the tetragrammaton to him? 
on the burning bush, right? When Moses comes in play. So Moses, it's within this 80 years or whatever that Moses is alive. And that's a recent thing. They had just gotten, like, I am that I am. I am who I say I am. And all, even if you read it, there is, the, the Tetragrammaton is used earlier in scripture, but it's obviously Moses putting that in to identify who it is. And, but Elohim, the general term for God that anybody would have used for God is used for the person of God up until, until Moses. So when you see this, you know, Jacob has never known the name of God. And that's what he wants to know. Who are you? What do I call you? We just call you Elohim. And so when you're the people of, of God in the desert, like you're reading this and you're like, yeah, Jacob, I know how you feel. <laughs> like, I want to know you deeper. I want to know your name. I want to know who you are. Um, and, and that's Jacob's heart through it, right? So uh, we wrestle with God in the darkness. We come out in the light. There's that theme. I don't want to spend too much more time uh, before getting into the rest of the, the scriptures. Um, but then kind of just the last thing to say tonight on that is if you read, there's one verse that was left out of, our, the, of the reading, verse 32. It talks about, the, and that's why the Israelites don't eat that, that sinew in the leg anymore is because of what happened with Jacob. So those were things before Deuteronomy was written, right, that were in the life of the people before Deuteronomy said, do these things, put them on your doorpost, Right, the where's Sydney? The what's the full land? The things that hang down from your that's the tassels, but those are a fancy name. Sydney uses it, I know that, but anyways, uh, and that was this was before this was in the life of the people that they were doing things to remember what God is doing, and so, um, that's going to come more into play in. And we read about, you know, how Jesus was breaking the bread. And, you know, we have that every week in the table. And we have that as a constant reminder to focus on the Lord, his sacrifice, what he's doing. He literally came incarnate for us and broke his body and shed his blood. And it was no easy thing to be separated from the Father and to have the wrath of God put on Christ. Um, but... We do those as reminders, you know, every week, but it's yet it's easy to make them trivial and, and rush to the table and, and take it because it's our Christian duty and everyone's doing it and it's making everybody late or whatever, you know. Uh, doesn't matter. It's, I just encourage everyone to think about those things that we have in the life of the church. Uh, and, you know, different people actually do these things in their families and, and not just in a Christian context, but... Uh, in various ways that I won't take any more time to talk about. So, do things as a remembrance, especially think about the table uh, that we come to weekly. So, we'll try to get through all our notes in Romans and, God, and, uh, and Matthew. Um, so, when I was talking about being pre-evangelized versus being pagan, you know, go back to in this Romans, you know, he says... Uh, uh, for I wish that I could be, uh, that I myself could be a, per, a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple services, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. Right? So there was a benefit. If you go back to Romans 3, he talks about that the Jews are no better off. 
even if they have the oracles of God, even if they have the covenant of circumcision, because we're all under sin. And he takes um, six chapters to talk about that. And, but he comes in Romans 9, talking about like there was a benefit. Like they have the patriarchs, they have the fathers, they have the oracles of God, they have the temple service, right? All these things were a benefit to the Jews because uh, it shed light on who the Christ was. And um, there's benefits to both, uh, I would say. Uh, you know, growing up in a, in a, a family or a church that um, either preaches the gospel and encourages you or is just even Christian light is still somewhat of a benefit, even if you're not happy with it. Um, you know, that's kind of my situation. And because I knew a lot more about God than I would have otherwise. But there's a lot of benefits of being pagan uh, because you don't have to relearn anything, <laughs> right? But, uh, but look at Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love, and look more at Romans 4 about justification through faith. Um, but just in that kind of context, thinking like, you know, those things that are given to you and passed on and who the, who the Jews grew up in was a supreme benefit to them, but also if they neglected it, was a supreme curse to them as well. Uh, rest of Romans 9, look at it on your own time about God's purposes in election. Uh, I spelled remnant wrong. On the last bullet point, take out that second E, the remnant principle in Scripture. Um, you know, I think it's something we gloss over. It starts, you know, the earliest I see it is at least in Genesis 9 of a remnant of people being saved in the flood. But you could really go back to like Genesis 6 of the people of God who are intermingling with uh, essentially the pagans. So anyways... Uh, just be aware of that, that God's always, we talk about this a lot on Sunday on from the pulpit, God's always calling a new move of God out of the old move of God, right? And if you think about that in context of Romans 9, of what he's talking about is, you know, because I think it's Romans 9, 6, or 7, it talks about, you know, but not everybody in Israel is true Israel. Not everyone who are sons of Abraham are true sons of Abraham. And so, but that's where he's calling people out of, right? He didn't, he uh, later calls people, right, through the disciples from all nations everywhere who are a remnant on the earth. But specifically when Christ came, he was talking to the Jews, right? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so every time that's a principle that God uses because it's out of his character that he's going to use his people. And so he's always going to use someone uh, that he's prepared in, in that way to, to do more things. But anyways, and don't skip over Paul's sentiment in verses one through three. I think it's so easy to read that and think, yeah, that's cool, Paul. But like, think about what he's saying, that his conscience testifies, you know, says with him and the Holy Spirit that he has great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart. And what I think it's in First Corinthians where he talks about like he's been flogged times, beaten, they thought he was dead. But on top of all those things of his honor roll of like how much bodily affliction he's had, he says, and greater than any of that is his constant grief and over the church and calling the church to who they are. That's like Paul's total heart in ministry. 
Um, and he's saying if he could save all of his kinsmen, all of Israel, by sacrificing himself, he would. And uh, would that we all have that heart. <laughs> I don't know if I'm there. <laughs> I know you guys too much. All right, on to Matthew. Um, for the last four minutes. All right, so... Uh, I think we've, you know, if you grew up in the church or if you read scripture through, this would have caught your eye of what Jesus is doing. Again, wilderness, he's out in the wilderness, he's doing this to make a point. He's feeding the 5,000 with uh, five loaves and, and two fish. Uh, I recently found out that fishes is a word, but it might not apply in this context. <laughs> if there was multiple species, we could use fishes. But, uh, so, think about that in context of Deuteronomy 8 when when Israel is brought out to the wilderness, you know, he says, I brought you out into the wilderness and tested you so that you may know that every man, uh, uh, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, right? Jesus is making a clear point in his ministry that he's out in the wilderness. He went out there um, by himself, but they followed him. They didn't let him, <laughs> it wasn't exactly, not that he didn't know what was going on, but he didn't say, guys, come out here. He was out there by himself, trying to find rest in a secluded place and people are bombarding him and he had compassion on them, right? And he starts ministry. He starts healing their sick. And, um, you know, we talked about this a little bit on, I think last Sunday, about Jesus being the true manna from heaven. You know, Jesus is making a clear point here that he's the real bread. Uh, the quail that was fed in the wilderness is now fish. Uh, they're in a desolate, desolate place. And, um, you know, this is where I especially, you know, the only uh, scripture selection this week that made me cry was the gospel uh, selection. Just thinking about, you know, I also often like to read the gospels and just take a minute and imagine what that would actually be like in time and space and to be bombarded and to have thousands of people following you when you're going out to a desolate place to find rest and you just start ministering. And then, you know, so what, what does Jesus do all the time? What's the major focus of his ministry? What do we got? Not just serving. In what, in what, what capacity? Healing. That's a kind of like a secondary. Teaching, right? His main ministry is teaching. He went out preaching the kingdom of God, right? And so we're presuming that as he's healing, he's not just healing and, and doing miracles, but he's preaching all day long, right? And it's getting late. And this is often what I do is in ministry, and we're going like, okay, guys, let's wrap this up, and I got other stuff to do, right? And his disciples come to him, and they're like, hey, Jesus, it's getting late. Come on, let's move these people along. There's thousands of people here. If we don't start moving... Like, we're not going to get a lot of sleep tonight, and we're, like, in the wilderness, and then we got to eat. And come on, let's, <laughs> let's lock the church up and go, right? And uh, Jesus says, no, 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 no. You give them something to eat. <laughs> and they're like, what do you mean? Right? We got, like, uh, if they were like me, they'd be all sarcastic and be like, well, we got these five fish and or these five loaves and these two fish. Here you go, Jesus. <laughs> let's feed 5,000 people. That's, what I would have, that's how I would have said it. I don't know if they were that sarcastic. but um, And it doesn't say what kind of inflection they have. 
but, right, that's Jesus, like Jesus was setting up this model of ministry and discipleship to say what, what I'm doing, you're going to be doing. Don't send them away. I didn't bring, I didn't allow 5,000 people, 5,000 men, plus the women and children, to come out to the wilderness to preach to them all day, to just send them away. We're going to feed them, <laughs> right? And that's what he does. And so, and so what kind of got me as just meditating on this this week was thinking like, you know, some of the very specific things it says in here that, that the Lord wants us to identify and think about is, uh, where are we here? Uh, verse 18, and he said to them, bring them here to me, right, the, the loaves and the fish, Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, right? So what's he do? We know in other gospel readings that he orders them to sit down in groups of 50s and hundreds, I think. And so he's setting up this model. He's doing it in a way, I think, of saying, that's like literally not the most efficient way to do it. <laughs> hey, everybody get in a line. Come on, single file. We're going to hand you it. You're going to move along and then go around this way. You come up. We hand it to you just like a soup kitchen or something. We feed you. We did our duty. Get on out, right? No. Sit down in groups. Commune together. Fellowship. We're going to serve you. We're coming to you. My disciples are going to feed you, right? That just, I was thinking about that this afternoon. And, um, you know, some of those things aren't didactic, but just like as you think through these things and, and meditate and um, a little bit of research just to close here a couple minutes over time is, uh, you know, the scriptures give light to things for a reason, yet it doesn't give the full context or the meaning, which I think, you know, our uh, kind of imagination or at least cultural context could help us there. And so when there's 12 baskets full, you know, 12 left over of broken pieces, you know, Jesus was going around or in some way he was breaking the bread either in front of his disciples or, or in front of the people. I don't know. It doesn't say exactly whether Jesus went to every group or anything, right? We don't really know. But he did tell the disciples to do something. And he did break the bread as this visual image that they would be remembering and seeing of how Jesus was, was doing ministry and stuff. So there's 12 baskets left over. That's ironic. There's 12 disciples. Is that just like a, a weird thing? <laughs> well, I don't know. But uh, in John Gill's commentary, which I, is free online and I highly recommend, um, uh, you know, he kind of says, like, because he's steeped in Jewish culture through John Gill's background, but you guys can read about that, is, you know, in a, in a Hebrew meal, in a Jewish meal, it wasn't a real meal. And I will second this, I agree, until you're satisfied. <laughs> If you leave hungry, it doesn't count. <laughs> Go back for more. Uh, and there wasn't, if your plate was clean, you're not done. <laughs> there has to be leftovers, right? I, we should go back to Jewish way of doing things. That would be, <laughs> praise the Lord. Um, but, you know, presumably, every, every disciple would have had a basket, right, of these leftovers. What do they do with them? Right, so he's number one. He's saying this is a meal that you're going to be satisfied with. It's going to be a real meal, and uh, a lot of times this is just contextually in Jewish culture. They would have taken those leftovers and given them to the poor or feed, fed someone in needy 
who was needy, right? Just like we see in, in Exodus of the manna, what do you do with someone who didn't gather that much or didn't gather enough? You share it. You give them some, whoever had extra, right? And so those things are steeped in Jewish culture that we don't necessarily see. And you think, why are there 12, pe- 12 baskets, 12 disciples? Maybe they all just got a lunch bag to eat with them practically, you know, on the, they get on a boat after this to eat on the, on the boat ride. No, I'm guessing it was because Jesus is here feeding the needy, feeding those people who followed him, that the 12 got it as an idea, you know, this kind of seminal idea in their discipleship that they're going to then donate and take care of the poor and they're going to be the ones taking care of people, right? Look at Acts 6, right? What is, what's the whole, uh, hubbubaloo, what's that word? (laughs) Hubbubaloo. And... Uh, it's that people weren't getting enough bread. They weren't getting fed, and the apostles couldn't handle it. It wasn't right for the apostles to handle it because they had to pray, <laughs> right, and teach. And so they, that's the first instance of, like, what it doesn't say deacon, but, you know, someone who would have the role of a deacon is to, to distribute the bread, right, to serve, to feed people. That's what they were doing was feeding the needy. And uh, I hope and pray that we sometime soon in our church raise up some type of ministry to physically help the needs of people out there, whether it's the reading program or feeding the homeless or doing something. I hope we do something like that in the near future uh, as a church body. So meditate on these things this week and let us come hopefully with a higher vision of Christ as we worship. Let's close in prayer. Uh, Father, we we honor you. We pray that you would uh, apply the things that you've written in your word to our minds, our hearts, our spirits, that we'd become more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Let us come worship you uh, excitedly, and uh, may you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Amen.